All right, well, it's time to get started. So good morning and welcome to the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. I am David Kaposha. Today we are continuing in our chronological study of the Bible and we've been moving through the book of 1 Samuel. And that brings us to the one of the most famous accounts in the Bible, that is the Battle of David and Goliath. Now you may know this record well, this piece of history well, but there's always the danger for a popular or a famous section of scripture to actually be misremembered or misunderstood and misapplied. So to underscore this point, let's just do a little quiz. And this is to be done in your heads, but take a look at these nine questions and see if you can answer them. Test yourself as to how well you could actually answer them. Number one, who killed Goliath? Number two, who was leading the Israelite army? Number three, how old was David during the battle? Number four, why didn't David wear any armor? Number five, what weapon or weapons did David take in the battle? Could you even draw a picture of them? Number six, what weapon was used to kill Goliath? Number seven, what was Goliath's challenge to the Israelites? Number eight, who is the hero of this section of scripture? And then number nine, what is the most important message of this passage of scripture? We've heard a lot about David and Goliath, but do we really know this account as well as we think? Well, let's go to this section of scripture with fresh eyes and make sure that we are understanding the Bible as it actually is written. We also, of course, want to be paying close attention because we want to be transformed by this text. The Spirit of God has laid this text before us this morning so that we would be changed by it, encouraged, convicted, instructed, and so we're looking for that this morning. So let's go to the Lord now and pray that he will indeed change us through his word, just as we were meant to be changed. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to your word now because we are coming for food. We need your word more even than physical bread. That's what your word says. We live on every word that comes from your mouth. We need that for spiritual strength. We need that to do the work that has been, that has been set before us in our lives. So God, we pray that your word would be effective this morning, that you would be so kind in your spirit as to empower me to be able to speak your word accurately and helpfully and clearly. And Lord, you would would also work in the hearts of the people, Lord, that they would be paying attention to it, humble themselves before your word, and be applying it into their lives. Lord, for any who are listening who do not know you, Jesus Christ, I pray that they be saved even by the word this morning as they hear about the mighty God that you are, especially to deliver. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, please take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. Remember the last time that we were in chapter 16, we saw how the Spirit of God came upon David after he was anointed. Remember Samuel, the last judge and a prophet of God, he anoints David with the holy oil. And it says after that, after he was anointed, he was anointed in the midst of his brothers, the Spirit of God came upon David powerfully. Now at the same time as the Spirit was coming upon David for unique empowerment, it was departing from Saul. And Instead, a harming spirit, an evil spirit, was sent to Saul. Now, how was this spirit dealt with? Remember, there was a way that Saul had a, uh, there was a means for Saul easing the torment that this spirit brought him. And what was that means? It was actually David. David was a skilled musician. He could play the harp well. And when David played in Saul's court, it eased Saul's mind. 
So that's the context in 1 Samuel 16. Let's start looking at the beginning of 1 Samuel 17. As I said, we'll go through the whole chapter, but we're just going to start with verses 1 to 16. We're going to look at the situation in which Israel and Saul find themselves. A dangerous predicament. So take a look, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come to draw out or draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. His name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and second to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul uh, to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. A Philistine came forward morning and evening for forty days and took his stand. All right, we'll stop there for now, but as we do, let's start our analysis of this passage by just doing basic observations of the text. What details do we actually see in the passage? We see here that Israel is at war with the Philistines. Their enemy are the Philistines who live by the coast. Two sides have drawn up in battle array on opposite sides of the valley of Elah, both sides taking good defensive positions. By the way, let me see if I can pull up my, yeah. So here's a Google image of the Elah Valley. And this has been labeled with some helpful labels from my uh, Israel geography teacher, Michael Grisanti, Dr. Grisanti. But you can see that we have well, likely where the Israelites would have been on the one side of the Valley of Elah, Philistines on the other side, both on these kind of hills or mountainous areas, good defensive positions. You have the brook Elah going in the middle, Azekah over here, Soka over here. You can still see the battle site today that we're talking about in this passage. But anyways, just want to show that to you. Before the battle takes place, a man named Goliath comes forth from the side of the Philistines and he speaks. And notice the details we get about Goliath in verses 4 to 7. He is called the champion of the Philistines, one who goes out between, and he's heavily armored. 
His coat of mail, or his coat of scales, this armor, it's said to weigh 5,000 shekels. Now, the precise weight of a shekel is debated, but one reckoning is that this coat of mail weighed about 125 pounds. Now, that's a lot. For perspective, the average U.S. soldier reportedly carries about 60 pounds of gear into battle, though he may carry as much as 120 pounds of gear on an extended patrol. Well, for a U.S. soldier, that weight includes his weapon, his armor, and his ammunition. But for Goliath, just the main armor piece alone is 125 pounds, or maybe more. He's wearing additional armor. He's got bronze greaves, that is, shin armor. And he's also heavily armed. We hear that he has a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. Now... A javelin was used in the ancient world and in the classical period. It was a precisely weighted spear that was meant to be thrown to impale enemy soldiers or disrupt enemy infantry formations. If you've got javelins raining down on you, you can't keep your tight order because you're going to try and avoid those spears coming down. So it would either it was meant to strike soldiers, disrupt formations, but also stick into and weigh down enemy shields. If a big spear runs into your shield and it's constructed in such a way it will stick into your shield and be basically like a dragging weight on it and you can't use your shield anymore and that makes you more vulnerable in battle. Javelins were a serious war device. Goliath has one of these javelins. He also has a spear, we're told, with a shaft like a weaver's beam. That means this spear probably was two to two and a half inches in diameter and probably about eight feet long. So that's just the wooden the wooden shaft. But then when you add the iron spear head, this spear probably would have been about nine to ten feet long. And that Spearhead is itself, 600 shekels, or probably about 15 pounds. So this is another weighty piece of equipment that Goliath wields with skill. He also has a shield carrier to give Goliath a large shield or some other equipment as necessary in battle, maybe some more javelins. And not mentioned in this section, but Goliath also has a sword, presumably a large sword. So he's heavily armored, heavily armed, and he's also incredibly big. Our text says six cubits in a span. Now, a cubit was an ancient measurement of about 18 inches. Though there are longer and shorter versions of the cubit in ancient times and even in the Bible. But if we do a quick little math calculation, if a cubit is 18 inches, six times 18, and we get 108 inches, or basically nine feet. So just from the, that section of it, it's nine feet. As for the span, what's a span? Well, span was another ancient measurement corresponding to the length between the tip of one's thumb and one's pinky when a hand is stretched out. Of course, you had different sized hands in ancient times, so that, that did vary a little bit, but a span was considered to be about half a cubit or nine inches. So according to what we have here in our text, Goliath was a little less than 10 feet because he's about nine feet from the cubit calculation and nine inches from the span calculation. So can you imagine meeting somebody who's nine feet, nine inches tall? That is a large man. And on all this height was likely packed a lot of weight and muscle. Goliath was an extremely large warrior. Oh yeah, um, Dwayne and Judy mentioned that Max Bowlingball weight is about 16 pounds and compared the spearhead of about 15 pounds. You can, that's a lot of force behind any sort of spear attack for sure because of the weight just the spearhead. 
So he's heavily armed, he's heavily armored, he's tall, he's a big guy, and he's extremely confident in himself. Verses 8 to 11, he issues a challenge to face any man of Israel in mortal combat. He claims that the results of the duel will determine the fate of the two peoples. Whoever wins, their people will be enslaved to the other side. Now notice for how long Goliath issues this provocative challenge to Israel. Twice a day for 40 days, according to verse 16, morning and evening. Now what's Israel's reaction to Goliath's challenge? Well, look at verse 11. It says they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now those are pretty similar descriptions. To be dismayed is, is kind of to be afraid. So why are they mentioned together? Isn't that kind of overkill? Well, it's for emphasis. Anytime you see repetition in the Bible, or similar terms being used together, it's usually for emphasis. It's to underscore that these people are really distraught. They are really scared because of Goliath. Now where's Saul in all this? Well, he's not mentioned specifically, but he would be included in verse 11, which means he's afraid too. And remember, Saul was one of the tallest men in Israel. That was actually one of the reasons he was selected as king, or at least confirmed as king. He was said to be a head taller from his shoulders up than everyone else. So naturally, the people would look to Saul to be their champion. I mean, they literally said about their king, we want a king who will fight our battles for us. Saul, this is your opportunity. Literally, we need you to fight this battle against their champion. Saul doesn't really match up with the physical specimen who is Goliath, even though Saul is probably an impressive-looking warrior himself. He's no Goliath, and he doesn't go out to face the Philistine. Really, by doing this, Saul was leading all Israel into fear. If the king's afraid, what are the people going to be? Actually, not a single Israelite is willing to risk facing Goliath in battle. They're all afraid. And consider how many thousands of soldiers must be with Saul. There's not one man who's willing to go out and face Goliath. But what had God said to Israel in the Torah, in the Law of Moses, regarding battle and fear? We've looked at this before, but I'll mention it to you again. Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy 20 verses 1 to 4 says this, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For Yahweh, your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For Yahweh, your God, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. That's an amazing promise. Battle, remember, was a fundamental place for Israel to be exercising faith in God. They had this incredible promise from God, but they had to actually go fight and show their trust in God. But they are clearly not doing so here. And Saul is leading them in lack of faith. But what about David? We've already been introduced to David at this point in 1 Samuel. Where is David? Why isn't he with Saul's army? Well, we hear in verse 15 that David has duties at home. As the youngest son of Jesse, he must go back to take care of the flock at Bethlehem. So he's not able to follow Saul on the war campaign. Uh, he was able to serve in Saul's court a little bit, but apparently he's been away for some time now. All right, with these observations, let's pause and 
talk about some interpretation for a moment. Actually, just one interpretation question right now. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering about Kiafa here, that's Kerbet Kiafa, one of the one of the great archaeological sites. This appears to be a, a fortress ruin from Solomon's time, and uh, it's part of just affirming what the Bible says about the Davidic monarchy and Solomon. Anyways, so that's right near the Valley of Elah. One question to ask before we move on. God promised victory to his covenant people if only they would believe in him. So why doesn't Israel believe in God here? Why doesn't Israel have faith in God? Was well, it not exactly what we've been seeing over the last few chapters? It is because they are looking at only the appearance of things. They're caught up again in externals. They look at Goliath and they say, there's no way anyone can beat that giant. This was Saul's problem, right? He just looked at the externals. This was Israel's problem when they looked for a king. Even Samuel was tempted to start thinking this way when he was looking for a new king to anoint. But remember what God said. He says, do not look at his outward appearance. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's the same thing. These, are, these Israelites are not believing God because they're walking by sight and not by faith. And truly, from a human perspective, when you're just looking with your eyes, Goliath looks unbeatable. And so, Israel's fearing instead of fighting. Unless we look down on Israel too much, I mean, consider if you were tasked with facing Goliath. Or you, had, you were one of the men or one of the people of Israel looking on from the battle line. Would you go down there to face Goliath? Could you imagine facing off against a nearly 10-foot warrior who's fully armed and armored, totally confident, battle-hardened, and maybe you've never been in battle before, and all you've got is your dinky sword or dinky spear? Are you going to go down? And you say, oh, I think I would. Yeah, yeah, I would do it. Well, if you want to know how you would have responded in this situation, just ask yourself how you respond to challenges to your faith today. Do you believe God when you face a trial or a temptation? Or do you doubt? Do you disobey out of fear and out of anxiety? Do you respond to challenges with courage or with fear? Well, God soon arranges for his anointed one, David, to arrive to the battlefield. Let's hear about David's arrival and the preparation he makes for battle in our next section of the chapter in verses 17 to 40. Follow along with me as I read, starting verse 17. Then Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp of your brothers. Or run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. 
When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? And he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may Yahweh be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments, and put a bronze helmet on his head, and clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off, he took his stick in his hand, and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. A little dramatic build-up here, but also some really uh, poignant details. Let's take some time to observe them. Notice in verses 17 and 19 why David is sent to the battle. His father Jesse sends him to his brothers to take them food and to find out how they are. In verse 20, before David leaves, note that he finds a keeper for the flock. He's not derelict in his duties there. And after David arrives, according to verses 20 to 23, he leaves the supplies to the baggage keeper, greets his brothers, but then he witnesses Goliath's, Goliath's defiant challenge once again given to fearful Israel. David then hears in verse 25 that Saul has promised certain rewards to the man who kills Goliath. And notice what these are. Saul promises riches. He promises a daughter in marriage, so a marriage into the royal family, and he also promises freedom, that is, freedom from taxation for the man and his family in Israel. Those are some pretty nice rewards. And at this, in verse 26, notice David expresses surprise, and he asks for confirmation. And notice why David's so surprised. Basically, he says, this is just a Philistine. 
And look at what he's done. He's defied the armies of God himself. David can't believe that this Philistine would do this and that such a reward would be offered to the one who will strike him down. Now in verse 28, how does Eliab, David's oldest brother, react to the words of David? Well, with judgment and anger. Eliab accuses David of being derelict in his duties as a shepherd. And he also accuses David of coming down simply to watch the battle, like it was some spectacle or show. Of course, David protests his innocence. In verse 31, however, word reaches Saul that David is asking about the reward for fighting Goliath and expressing confidence in Goliath's defeat. And so Saul sends for, da sends for David. Notice in verses 32 and 33 how Saul reacts when David offers to fight Goliath. <laughs> Don't worry, Saul, I'll take care of this Philistine for you. Saul tells David, you can't do it. You're not able to face Goliath or to defeat him. And why? Saul points out, David, you are a youth. You're so young. And Goliath is a very experienced warrior. Now, the term youth, as translated in our New American Standard, the Hebrew term behind it most basically refers to a male of marriageable age who has not yet been betrothed. So kind of around that age. Marriageable age, so you, you've become a man officially in Hebrew eyes, but you're not yet married, not yet betrothed. So this would probably be a term to describe someone between the ages of 13 to 20. And Saul says, this is what you are, David. You can't face Goliath. But David responds in verses 34 and 37 by offering some assurances to Saul. And notice what David says. David relates how he killed both a lion and a bear while protecting sheep. Even in close combat, seizing animals by the beard. <laughs> now, I've never faced an animal in close combat, but I don't know if I would try seizing it by the beard, by the, the fur on the face. That's what David did. And these were certainly impressive feats, even in ancient times. But notice, whom does David credit for these victories against animals? He said, it was Yahweh. It was Yahweh who delivered me from their, their paws and enabled me to overcome them. David then expresses confidence. God will do the same for me against this Philistine. Well, in verses 37 to 38, Saul agrees to let David fight, and he offers him armor and garments for David to wear. But David chooses not to use this armor. Why not? Well, according to verse 39, it's a simple reason. He hadn't tested them. You see, David has fought before, but apparently he's never fought in armor. He's not used to fighting with armor on, either with Saul's armor or with anyone else's armor. So if he were to try and go out in armor, all of a sudden, he might make some dangerous battle mistakes, simply because he's not used to his equipment. This would be like a quarterback switching to a new kind of glove right before the first snap of the Super Bowl. You just don't do that. Or a chef being asked to, at the last moment to cook Thanksgiving dinner in an oven and a kitchen that he's never used before. You're just asking for trouble. You're asking for mistakes to happen when you're unfamiliar with the equipment and you're in a high-pressure situation. So David says, in effect, I don't have time to get used to this equipment. I don't have time to train with this. I'm just going to go with what I'm used to. So he just uses his shepherd's equipment. By the way, what does David not even mention in the discussion with Saul? The reward. 
And what is the equipment that David takes with him? What does he take into battle against this heavily armed champion of Philistia? Well, we see it in verse 40. David takes his shepherd's stick, his staff. He takes five smooth stones, which he places in his bag. And he takes a sling. Now, what's a sling? Well, I put some pictures there on the screen to help you get an idea. A sling is another ancient weapon. It's also found use in classical times under the Greeks and the Romans. Also called a shepherd's sling. A sling was essentially a twisted cord with a pouch in the middle. A slinger would nestle a blunt projectile, like a stone or a sling bullet made out of clay or lead, into the pouch. It would then swing the cord in a circle and then release one end of the cord at just the right moment to fling the projectile toward his target. It's a pretty simple idea, though there were a few methods of release, and you can see both of them there, and the main ones. Most commonly, a slinger would rotate the sling at his side in a vertical circle. A quick overhand rotation would enable, or would enable a slinger to make an accurate shot. You could really be precise when you're doing it overhand. Whereas a quick underhand rotation, so rotating backwards, enabled a slinger to uh, sacrifice precise accuracy for increased range. For instance, a group of slingers, they might all use the underhead, underhand rotation method for raining down sling bullets on a formation of enemies. There you don't need precise accuracy, you just want the distance. Now a horizontal rotation, which is probably what we commonly think of when we think of David facing Goliath, it was sometimes used, but it's not the preferred method. And why? Because it's not very accurate. The slightest mistiming of release when you're doing it, this horizontal rotation, it would mean that you would completely miss the target because instead of going straight, it goes to the side or something like that. Whereas if you're just doing it from the side and you mistime your release, well, the distance might change, but at least you have the right direction. So a side rotation was usually better. Now, a good slinger needed only one rotation, one rotation to send his stone to his target, which is probably, again, not what we think of it. We imagine, I don't know, this is what I imagine, is like winding up for a long time. That's not what they needed. Just maybe one or two, oops, sorry about that, one or two slow rotations to uh, nestle the bullet in the pouch and then release. Slings rivaled and even surpassed ancient bows in strike distance and experienced slingers could be highly accurate. According to Judges 20, verse 16, there's a, there was a group of slingers in Israel, a group of left-handed men from Gibeah, 700 of them, who were said to be able to sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Now that's impressive. Now some, ar some armies in ancient and classical times, they featured groups of dedicated slingers. That's all they did, they slung stones but there were other armies that equipped all their soldiers with slings. And so everybody would use the slings at a distance, but then they would use other weapons when they closed for melee combat. So, a little bit of background on slings. This is one of the weapons that David takes with him into battle. Well, with these observations, let's pause again to ask two interpretation questions. I like your comment there, Mark. The people were afraid of Goliath, but David was afraid for Goliath since his orientation was vertical toward God. That is, yeah, David's like, man, Goliath's such a fool to be making such a challenge against the armies of the living God. And this guy's toast. Whereas, yeah, the rest of Israel thought that they were toast if they were going to face Goliath. Now, 
Just a few questions here before we move on. Why is Eliab so quick to accuse David of evil? It's pretty striking, right? Well, clearly, Eliab resents David for some reason. Why? Text doesn't say, but we can come up with some pretty strong possibilities. It may be this is just the frequent fleshiness that often exists between older brothers and younger brothers. I mean, if you've ever been in a family, you know that older brothers, they tend to pick on and pass judgment on the younger sibling. This is just the way that the sinful flesh manifests itself. In fact, this probably is true on some level between David and Eliab because of David's response. He says, what have I done now? Seems like they've had a history of maybe Eliab criticizing or rebuking David. It may also be that David or Eliab resents David being anointed instead of Eliab. Remember, that didn't happen too long ago. David was anointed in the midst of his brothers. Maybe Eliab still has a chip on his shoulder over that because he's the oldest. It may also be that Eliab is ashamed of his own fear in light of David's courage. David's doing what's right. It's making Eliab look bad, making the rest of Israel look bad. Eliab doesn't like that. We don't know exactly. It could be a combination of these reasons, but isn't this actually pretty sad? I mean, David is doing what's right. He's expressing righteous confidence in God. And what's the response of his own brother? Immediate opposition and condemnation. David, how dare you say something like that? I know what's really going on in your heart. But you know, isn't this pretty true, the Christian life? Puritan commentator Matthew Henry, he helpfully observes that Christians should expect opposition the one they try to do what's right. And not just from those outside the church, but many times from within the church, even from those closest to you, those who ought to support you and encourage you. Sometimes, maybe in your family or in the church, you'll be looking to do what's right. You'll be going out on a limb for the Lord, being bold for the Lord, and instead, you're, instead of confirmation and encouragement, you're met with opposition. You feel like suddenly you're alone. But like Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.17, this was at the end of his life when he was expecting martyrdom, he said everybody abandoned him. No one was with him anymore. Nobody stood with him except the Lord. He said the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Another question. How old is David? Is David a boy or a young man? Well, by modern standards, we might consider David a boy, since he was likely in his teens, maybe late teens. We often don't consider people to be adults until they reach 17 or 18, or maybe even 20 or 22. But back then, David would have been considered a young man. In Hebrew eyes, he was a man. A young man, yes, but a man. He is described as a youth in our passage, but also as a young man. You remember the description, though, in 1 Samuel 16, David is described as a mighty man of valor, a warrior, a handsome man. David even puts on armor provided by Saul. Granted, he doesn't take it with him, but he does put it on. And the armor seemed to fit fine. There's no indication that the armor just didn't fit. But David wasn't used to fighting in the armor, and that's why he chooses to go without. Armor is made for men, not for boys. So despite many cartoons maybe you've seen of 
a little boy David going off to face Goliath, that's probably not accurate. David's a man, a young man, but a man. And he's strong, courageous, experienced in fighting, but not seasoned in battle. He's only faced animals, not really people. Speaking of battle, let's see how the battle itself unfolds and what is its aftermath. Look now at the last section of our chapter, verses 40 to 58. Follow along as I read. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day Yahweh will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened, when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shotraim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his weapons in his tent. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I do not know. The king said, You inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Just amazing. Let's observe this last section. Notice in verses 41 to 44 how Goliath responds to David's coming forward to fight him. Goliath disdains David, mocks him, curses him by Goliath's gods. But how does David respond to Goliath's mocking and threats? Look at verses 45 to 47. David tells Goliath that Goliath has really taunted God. And David comes to Goliath in God's name, and God will cause David both to kill Goliath and cause the Israelites to kill the Philistines. Also notice what David specifically wants everyone to know based on this battle. In verse 46, he says, 
I want everyone to know that there is a God in Israel. And in verse 47, I want everyone to know that Yahweh does not need a sword or a spear to deliver. Yahweh is not delivered by sword or spear, for the battle is Yahweh's. Verse 47. Well, David, as we see, prevails over Goliath, remarkably. But how exactly does David kill Goliath? Verse 50 says, David killed Goliath without a sword, only a sling. Verse 51 says, David killed Goliath with Goliath's own sword, by cutting off Goliath's head. Hmm. Well, notice how the two armies respond to Goliath's fall in verses 51 to 53. The Philistines flee, and Israel pursues, striking down many Philistines and plundering the Philistine camps. Notice the question, though, that appears near the end of the passage. Verse 55, Saul asks, Whose son is this young man? In verses 57 to 58, when David returns from the battle with the rest of Israel, he tells Saul who he is. I'm the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay, now that we've made these last basic observations, let's turn again to interpretation questions. How do we resolve the difficulty of the contradictory reports on Goliath's death in verses 50 to 51? One says he was killed by a sling, another says he was killed by a sword. Well, the text is a little ambiguous, but there is a simple solution here. This is very common in the Old Testament, even throughout the scriptures. What we have in verse 50 is probably a summary statement of the whole battle, while verse 51 is a more specific description of Goliath's demise. If you just take the battle as a whole, basically David killed, killed Goliath with just a sling. He didn't have a sword when he went into the battle. But if you want to be technical about it, verse 51 is also true. Goliath wasn't actually dead until David came with his sword, Goliath's sword, and cut off Goliath's head. So likely Goliath was incapacitated or severely injured by the slingstone, but it was only by being beheaded that Goliath was actually killed. So these are not really contradictory, just one's a summary and one's more specific. Now, here's another question that may have occurred to your mind, though. Why does Saul ask about David's identity or David's lineage? I mean, we saw chapter 16. David has already been introduced to Saul. Why is Saul asking about this background information on David? This is a difficult question. And of course, this is where a, a liberal theologian likes to stand up and manifest his unbelief by saying, see, this is why you can't believe the history of the Bible. This is two accounts stitched together that contradict each other, and the original editor-author just wasn't smart enough to actually smooth out the inconsistencies. He's left them both here because they really contradict each other, and he didn't figure out, couldn't figure out a way to resolve it. This is why you can't believe the Bible. No, no, this is not true. We're quite aware, if we know Jesus Christ, that the word of God is true. And as Jesus says, scripture cannot be broken. And there is a solution to this apparent puzzling situation. Actually, there are several solutions which would readily explain this reintroduction of David to Saul. And this re reintroduction of David's lineage to Saul. I'll just give you some of the possibilities. It may be that David or that Saul hadn't gotten to know David all that well before. Saul did appreciate David, but perhaps Saul had many servants he appreciated, even many armor bearers. We heard that Saul made David an armor bearer. David probably wasn't the only one. And though David was helpful for alleviating Saul's feelings of torment by music, perhaps Saul only had a surface relationship with David. Yes, chapter 16 says that Saul loved David, but again, what's the level of that love? Maybe it's only on the surface. 
So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that Saul had forgotten about David. I'm not told how much time went by between David's being at Saul's court and David's appearing at the battle line with Israel. Perhaps many months or even a couple of years went by where David was basically tending the sheep and no longer visiting the court of Saul. If so, then Saul may have no longer recognized David, especially because David had been growing up. Another possibility is that Saul asked this question out of amazement. He's dumbfounded about David, not really in need of more information. He's, Saul is basically saying to himself and to Abner, could this great warrior really be the humble shepherd who used to play the harp at my court? Go find out to make sure, because I don't think so. That's a possibility. It may also be that Saul asked this question because he now has a greater interest in David. I mean, after all, Saul had promised his daughter to the one who brought down Goliath. And that's what David did. So David's family background is suddenly very important because he's going to be integrated into the royal family. So Saul goes to find out David's lineage. Curiously, though, Saul does not immediately reward David with the bride that Saul promised. David will eventually marry Saul's daughter, but only after jumping through a bunch more hoops. Many of these reasons, or these reasons would explain why we have Saul ask his question. Multiple reasons actually may have been tied together. These are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but there's a clear, there's a way to explain this text without invoking the idea that the text is not trustworthy or that it's contradictory. It's not really contradictory. It's just, uh, we don't, we don't have the full explanation given to us explicitly in the text. One other explanation is that chapters 16 and 17 actually overlap a little bit. Again, kind of like with verse 50 and verse 51, where you have this um, summary statement being given, and then it backs up and gives you the more specific description of what happened. This may be happening between chapters 16 and 17. Chapter 17 kind of backs up their chronology, where chapter 16 said, oh yeah, David became an armor bearer and Saul loved him. It may be that chapter 17 is backing up and saying, okay, before he became an armor bearer, and before Saul really became to, began to love him, these other things happened. And this is, again, this is not contradictory. This is just characteristic of the Bible. We see the same thing, by the way, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And the same kind of objection is raised. Look, we have a creation account that contradicts. Uh, chapter 2 gives a different account than chapter 1. No, it doesn't. It just backs up and gives more detail on something that was stated in a summary fashion in chapter 1. Chapter 1 gives the whole creation week. Chapter 2 goes back and describes in more detail the creation of man. It could be the same thing happening here between chapters 16 and 17 in explaining the introduction of David into Saul's court and his integration into Saul's family. But again, multiple plausible explanations. The Bible is trustworthy. Now, one other big question I want to ask here. Oh, that's an interesting comment, Roy. Maybe Saul is asking because he's aware of the prophecy about a king coming from Judah. I want to find out whether David really was from the line of Judah. Hmm, interesting idea. Another question I want to bring to your attention here. And that is, why is David so confident that he will defeat Goliath? I mean, after all, God never specifically promises David in our text that, that that's what's going to happen. So why does David believe that it will? Now, here's another question with multiple possible answers, multiple explanations. And again, these answers are not mutually exclusive. 
we are aware on the, on the one hand that God promised to be with his people in battle. He says, if you follow me, I will grant you astounding victories. Now, this is generally true, but it's not absolutely true. The Bible does record how righteous rulers, they sometimes experience defeat in battle, even death in battle, while evil rulers sometimes gain great victories. And righteous men are slain and evil men survive and prosper. So this promise of God is generally true, and maybe David was clinging to that, but could David really have known for sure that God would grant him the victory? Now, it may be that David was relying on what was prophesied over him by Samuel. He's going to be the future king of Israel. So I can't die in battle if I'm going to be the future king. I can go into the battle with boldness. Okay, perhaps that was what was on David's mind. But David surely would have had to adopt the same attitude as Jesus in the New Testament, which is you do not test the Lord by his promises. Remember, Jesus was tempted to by Satan to throw himself off of the temple because he said, hey, God's going to protect you. But Jesus responded, you don't put the Lord to the test. You don't act recklessly just because God promised that he will bring cert uh, certain things about for you. So that certainly would have to apply to David. It may also be that this is just having to do with David's special empowerment by the Spirit. As a, as a result of the Spirit powerfully coming upon David, David is more connected with God's will. And so the Spirit is leading David to fight Goliath and giving David confidence that he will overcome Goliath. Now, while this may be true, the Spirit, remember, does not overcome or override decisions of faith. The Spirit empowered Saul, remember, but Saul chose to disobey God. So even if this is part of the answer, David still had to choose to trust God and go into the battle. It may also be that David didn't actually know for sure that he would vanquish Goliath and survive the battle. He believed that he would. He wasn't sure. He just believed because of his, his um, being attuned to God's will by his love for God and by his uh, empowerment by the Spirit, he believed that God would do a certain thing, but he was ready for God not to do that. This is the way that we see things unfold for Daniel's three friends later on in the Old Testament. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Unfortunately, we know them best by their Babylonian names rather than their Israelite names. But they tell Nebuchadnezzar, hey, we're not going to bow down to your God. You throw us in the furnace, we believe that God will deliver us out of your hand. But even if not, they're ready for that possibility. Know that we're not going to bow down to your God. Same thing might be happening with David here. He might be saying, look, God called us to be courageous in battle and to not endure those who blaspheme his name and bring shame on his people. I'm going to go out there into the battle. I believe that God's going to bring him into my hand because I'm doing what's, what's consistent with what God has called us to do. But even if not, I'll at least die knowing that I was obeying the Lord and being bold for his name. It's possible. Whatever the reason for David's utmost confidence, and again, it could be a combination of these reasons, surely it does ultimately come down to one item. Why did David have confidence? It's because he believed the Lord. He was walking by faith. Just as Hebrews 11 verses 32 to 34 says, when recounting the great things that were accomplished by faith in the Old Testament, David's feet is right along with them. It was done by faith. 
And isn't this, again, such a great contrast to King Saul? King Saul is the ever-walk-by-sight man. But David, he walks by faith. He knew from the scriptures, and he knew from his own experiences confirming the scriptures, that God is able to work powerfully on behalf of his people when his people simply believe in the Lord. He will work even through the weak and foolish, even through young men without battle experience, like David. God indeed, just as David testified and he wanted the whole world to see, God indeed does not deliver by sword or spear, but by his own power, the power of his word being fulfilled on behalf of those who will put their trust in him. God is able to grant deliverance, and he doesn't need your sword or your spear to do it. He works powerfully through weak vessels. This is the lesson David wanted to teach Israel. This is the lesson that the writer 1 Samuel wanted to teach his audience. And it's the lesson that the Spirit of God wants us to learn today. So brothers and sisters, we need to hear what the Spirit says to us via this account of David and Goliath. There is only one true God, the God of the Bible. There is a God. He is in heaven and he is active on the earth. This God does not need man's power, man's money, man's wisdom, or man's weapons to bring about deliverance. Rather, the battle is Yahweh's. God has promised to fight himself on behalf of his people and to deliver them and to provide for them. God calls his people to, in response, walk by faith and not by sight. When they do, What's the outcome? God is delighted to put his awesome power on display through them and on their behalf. Using even young shepherds to take down pagan giants. So we're already seeing some application, aren't we? We are meant to be changed by this account. To become men, women, children of faith. Let me suggest a few more specific applications as we look to meditate more on this concept of really walking by faith in God and not by sight. Here's one. How should we be changed by this passage? Believe in your mighty God. This is what we've already been talking about. But you say, well, yeah, I do believe in God. I hope that's true. But we don't face pagan giants like Goliath today, do we? And none of us are being called to go into battle against people who are almost 10 feet tall. But we do have our own battles to fight, don't we? Now, I don't mean, as some people who would be peddling the prosperity gospel, I don't mean that we should think of this passage and apply it by saying, what is the giant of your life? What is that thing that you just really want to happen, have happen? Some prosperity or some success that you're looking for? Well, you believe in God and God will make it happen. No, that's not what this passage is saying. But the passage is saying, the principle that we see here is that whatever work, whatever challenge, especially into your faith that God has placed in your life, you can believe the Lord about it. And he will bring deliverance and provision in the perfect way. So it isn't inappropriate for us to ask, what is the giant in your life, if we understand that properly? What is that temptation What is that trial that you're experiencing where you just say, God, 
I don't know how I'm going to get past this. God, I don't know how I'm going to be able to endure by remaining faithful to you. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to be able to evangelize this person. I don't know how that person is going to become saved. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to be able to respond in a righteous way to my spouse who's sinning against me. Lord, I don't know how I can accomplish this work project because you know that I'm under a huge strain at home and Lord, I, I hardly even know what to do at the job. Lord, how am I going to do it? This passage is written for those exact situations. It's the same thing that we've been seeing again and again in the Old Testament, isn't it? Israel was backed into a corner at the Red Sea. They didn't see any deliverance, but God brought it. Israel went into the Promised Land. They saw giants in the land. They thought, we'll never be able to overcome them. But then God brought them back 40 years later, and he says, look, when I fight on your behalf, nobody can stand against you. Look what I did with Jericho. Look what I did at all these other cities. The same thing here. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> though we don't face actual giants in our lives, we do face a version of this same temptation. It's exactly as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, right? No temptation has overtaken you as such, except that which is common to man. We all experience the same kind of temptation. Different magnitudes, but it's the same question. Are you going to walk by faith, or are you going to walk by sight? Are you going to say, I need to see the solution. I need to see how God's going to do something before I trust him. Or can you say, as David really essentially said in his heart, I don't know how God's going to do it, but I know he's going to do it. So I'm going to, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be bold for him. I want to see his name exalted. Where do you need to do that in your life? This is obviously true when it comes to salvation, isn't it? I wouldn't say that this passage is a metaphor for what Jesus did on the cross, but certainly there's a principle there. God is able to accomplish the salvation that you are not able to accomplish on your own, that you are not able to do anything to contribute to. By sending his son, Jesus, the Messiah, he was able to totally pay for the sins of those who believe in Jesus at the cross, when Jesus suffered the wrath of God. And Jesus instead gave those persons who believe in him his perfect righteousness. That's something that you embrace by faith. And only those who have embraced that by faith will be saved from the wrath to come. Have you done that? Do you not only walk before the Lord with faith in his salvation provision, but also his daily provision for your life? This passage is teaching us, the Spirit is teaching us, we are to believe in our mighty God. Uh, time is running short, so I'll just mention these two other applications quickly. Another application from this passage is that we've got to be ready to stand alone. And David was doing what's right, but he was immediately opposed by even his own brother and by the king. His brother said, by you doing this, you're actually wicked. And the king said, hey, it's not a bad thing, but you're just not able. And you know what? We're going to experience the same kind of discouragements in our lives. People will be telling us we're doing evil when we're actually doing right, and people will also be saying you can't do it, even if they think it's commendable. Now, again, we, we need to have a humble perspective and not just be like, oh, well, I'm not going to pay attention to what anyone says. <laughs> if they're telling you the truth, then you need to listen. Maybe you are doing wrong, or maybe you aren't able to do a particular thing. But with what they're saying contradicts what the scripture says, and you're rightly interpreting that scripture, and you've, and you've got even good counselors confirming your interpretation, be ready to stand alone. Now, I think it's kind of interesting that nobody goes out to Goliath in the beginning, but once David faces Goliath, everybody joins the battle. You know what? That's going to be true also for us. 
Sometimes you stand alone, but once you do that, other people begin to stand with you. It's not that they needed somebody to go forward before them, but it just gives them that little bit more of encouragement. You don't know what kind of example you might be, an encouragement you might be to someone. When you go out and do what no one else is willing to do, others will join with you. And of course, this is what our Lord did first, right? He was the trailblazer. He did what was right before the Father, alone. Everyone abandoned him. And he stands with all those who might temporarily have to stand alone. Finally, expect God to glorify himself through you. You know, it's again remarkable that David is the only one who went out to face Goliath. Yeah, we like to think of this as the classic underdog story, but that's kind of a misinterpretation because really, you know who the underdog in this fight was? It was Goliath because he didn't have God on his side. David had God. David wasn't really anything special in and of himself. Yes, he had faith in God, and that's what made him powerful, but not because David was powerful, but because God was powerful. And you know what? That's, that's great news because we're just like David. There is no power in any of us, and yet God... He is with his people and he uses them powerfully. You actually can do things like David did. Again, not exactly the same, but the same in type because God is with you. Yes, you can train up godly children. Yes, you can lead others to salvation. You can disciple others. You can do great things for the Lord. Not in your power, but in the Lord's power. Do you actually believe that? You say, no, no, God can never use me. I'm nobody. I'm nothing special. I've never been good at the. You're talking like Moses. You're talking like Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And you're going to get the same rebuke. God says, look, I'm the creator. I made man's mouth. I made you. It's not your power. It's not you that you need to trust in. It's me. Any of us could be like a David. We could go down into the battle and see God do great things. Let's not be like the rest of Israel who just sat on the sidelines saying, oh man, I really hope some champion shows up and takes down this, this giant because none of us can do it. Any of them could have done it if they had believed in the Lord. I often bring up that quote from William Carey, but I think it's so apt. Remember William Carey, great missionary to India, actually started the modern missions movement, a trailblazer really, He's famous for saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. If we don't expect anything great from God, then we shouldn't be surprised when God does nothing great because we're not acting in faith. So believe in your mighty God. Be ready to stand alone, but never alone because God is with you. And expect God to do great things, to glorify himself through even you. Now, God's going to do it in many different ways, and sometimes people are going to notice, and sometimes they won't. But you know that if you're walking by faith in the Lord, and you're going into bold obedience for Him, it's going to have an eternal impact, and it will obtain an eternal reward. All right, I'm going a little bit over, so I better stop there. But That's it for this week. If you have other questions or comments about what we've talked about today, please post them in the chat, or email me, dafkaposha at gmail.com. I'd love to interact with you. 
Let me close our time in prayer. Next week, we see just an amazing development in the, in the record of history. Saul, who's just experienced this wonderful encouragement of David's deliverance against Goliath, what does he do? He turns against David because he sees David as a threat. Next time, we'll talk about how God raises up more provision for David and a man named Jonathan who warns David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is an encouraging word. And Lord, forgive us for where we have been, a walk by sight people and not a walk by faith people. Oh Lord, let us not do that anymore. We need to finally learn this lesson and learn again what we have learned from your scriptures that you can be believed even against impenetrable walls or giants or a whole land filled with fortresses. You're able to overcome them all and you can overcome any obstacle of faith in our lives so that we can endure trials and we can resist temptation and we can make disciples as Jesus called us to. Lord, the power is in you. We are weak. But you are strong, so glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you again for being part of this study today. And I look forward to seeing you next week. And hope you'll join us for the live stream of our outdoor service at 11 o'clock uh, here at the Calvary YouTube page. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.